0: We are rolling. This is Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast, and I am your host, Alex Painter. And welcome to all of you to episode four of this program. I'd like to thank you for electing to spend a little bit of your time tuning in. Uh, We've got a great show planned today, but as always, want to start with some quick thank yous. So, again, thank you to you, the listener. Uh, for tuning in, but also thank you if you listen to episode three, two, or one, all three, whatever have you. Thank you for liking, sharing, commenting, and as, of course, uh, most importantly, listening. But thank you very much. I I really appreciate it, and I've received some really good feedback from from those of you who have elected to share that with me. So, thank you again, and of course, thank you to Joseph Rakish, whose theme song, uh, excuse me, whose song, Knut Rockney serves as our theme song. And you can find the song on Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, however you digest music. Go give it a spin. Go give it a listen. Add it to your pregame playlist. I know I sure have. And um, thank you again to, to Joseph for allowing the show exclusive access and usage of the song. So we are streaming on Podbean, which is our host site, but you can also find us on Castbox as well as I'm excited to, again, announce Apple Podcasts as well. So if you have an iPhone, just feel free, if you haven't already, click that purple podcast icon, and you can find the show. If you go into the search box and put in Onward to Victory or Notre Dame, you can find us. Feel free to hit that subscribe button. You'll be alerted to all the new uh, episodes as they are released. And the same could be said for Podbean as well. You can download that app. So thank you again for all the subscribers. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. Your support is great graciously accepted. So if you would like to email the show, you can do so very simply at Onward to Victory podcast at gmail.com. And also, if you want to go visit headquarters, HQ as I call it, uh, that's the Facebook page. So that's facebook.com slash onward to victory podcast and if you follow us on facebook then you'll be aware then you probably are aware excuse me of the new merchandise that we have so we have a new business card size magnet for your fridge or wherever you stick your magnets as well as a onward to victory postcard and so i'll be using those for giveaways during future episodes but if you'd like to support the show Please feel free to donate five dollars, three dollars, whatever you have, and I will be more than happy to send one of each directly to your house. Um, you know, I'll take care of the shipping and all of that. So the show, actually, believe it or not, does cost money to put on. Whether it be for you know newspaper subscriptions, books for research, as well as a host site, uh, Podbean costs money as well. So. Any monetary support I hate to ask for money but it is so greatly appreciated and so if you are interested I put a PayPal link on the uh, Facebook page and don't hesitate to like I said whatever you have laying around three dollars five dollars all of it's gonna help all of it will go directly back into the show and for the greater good so, I'm really excited about this episode, and I want to make sure that it gets, uh, it reaches far and wide, I should say. But I'm also very excited about next episode, too. So, we'll talk about today's episode, but next episode will be our big season preview. As the season kickoff against uh, the University of Louisville Cardinals uh, gets closer and closer by the day, and that September 2nd date is looming large. So, I want to make sure that I get as much audience participation for next episode... As I can, while also simultaneously spreading this episode. So, we will be doing a giveaway similar to what we did for the first episode, and there will be an autographed Notre Dame football card, as well as one of the magnets and and uh, po- uh, postcards. But how to enter? Whereas the first the first episode had, if you share the episode. You would be automatically entered in to win the prize. This episode, if you simply send the show a Facebook message, uh, it could say anything. Go Irish or your prediction for the 2019 season or any message that you would like actually read in the season preview episode. Feel free to send the show a message. You can go to the Facebook page and just click the blue send message. Put anything you'd like. I'll read it on the next episode. So not only will you get to hear your name on the episode, but you'll also be entered to win a prize. So please, by all means, and I'll be sharing what the prize is here soon. Please, by all means, send the show a message. Correspond. I'll reply. I promise you I'll reply. Um, and, and my thanks uh, already, uh, wanted to send my thanks out to you for doing so. So just to recap last episode, episode three, we talked about the instant classic 2012 game against Stanford, uh, which of course ended in that epic goal line stance. So that was a lot of fun to kind of relive, uh, kind of blow by blow for the most part. And then we also talked about the top five names you need to know heading into the 2019 season, except the caveat was, is they were names that maybe were lesser known. Then, you know, I didn't say like, oh, Ian Book, Chase Claypool, and Aloe Gilman, for instance. Uh, I went with five kind of newish names on the Notre Dame scene and five names that you could hopefully expect good seasons from in 2019. So that was last episode. So without further ado, let's let's kind of get launch into this episode. I hope I've covered everything that I've wanted to cover. I'm kind of going through the checklist here in my mind, but but uh, I think that's everything. So let's, let's launch into our first bit of programming here. And actually, for this episode, our only bit of programming. We're going to take a very deep dive um, and into today's subject. And that is a subject that, as a listener of the show, you're probably a fan of Notre Dame football. So you are undoubtedly aware of the name George Gipp. Now, everyone knows George Gipp. But does everyone actually know George Gipp. And people are familiar with the legend of George Gipp in a multitude of ways, whether it was the 1940 movie Knut Rockne All American, where George Gipp was actually played pretty well by, by future President Ronald Reagan, and of course, Rockne was played by Pat O'Brien equally well. Uh, people are familiar with kind of the legend uh, surrounding him, but something that I, I just rewatched the movie here recently, the Knut Rockne All American movie, and George Gipp is kind of presented as this All-American guy. And, you know, naturally, he was Notre Dame's first All-American, not to spoil the end of the story here. But really, if you look at George Gipp, he was far from. And not to say he was a bad person. He was not a bad person. But he was just kind of cut from a different cloth. He marched to the beat of his own drum. And I think that... I think it's a story that deserves a little bit more delving into, and and so I decided to do an episode about George Gipp, and so that's kind of where we're at right now, but I used two books mostly for sources, so the first one is The Gipper, written by Jack Cavanaugh in 2010, and it's called The Gipper, George Gipp, Knut Rockne, and the Dramatic Rise of Notre Dame Football, so that's an excellent book if you're looking to, to kind of get some Gipp knowledge, uh, it's, it's very uh, reader-friendly. The chapters are chunked and kind of uh, shorter, and so they kind of flow uh, fairly well together. And then the other one was Shake Down the Thunder, The Rise of Notre Dame Football, uh, written by Murray Sperber in the early 90s. So again, I'm, I'm not doing this in order to kind of besmirch Gip, not at all. Actually, quite the exact opposite. Um, I just noticed that in the movie, his his, I don't know, his personality is... Doesn't really match up, even though it's played really well by Ronald Reagan, doesn't really match up with the real Gip. And truthfully, I think the real Gip is much more interesting, much more nuanced, and very misunderstood, and misrepresented. So so without further ado, let's, let's just jump right in here. So I give you George Gip, the charming rogue, the life and times of Notre Dame's sensational, yet enigmatic, icon. George Gipp was born on February 18, 1895 in Lorium, Michigan to Matthew and Isabella Gipp who hailed from German and Scots-Irish heritage, respectively. He was ultimately one of eight children. The year George was born, his hometown of Lauriam was actually in the midst of a rebrand, having been known as Calumet, Michigan, for the town's first several decades. Now, just to make things fun, nearby Red Jacket, Michigan, would later lay claim to the name of Calumet and is still known by that moniker to this day. To give you a stronger sense of place for our hero, Lorium is located in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, also known as the U.P. Moreover, it is among the towns in the Keweenaw Peninsula, which was near the northernmost tip of the U.P. In the modern day, it would be about a nine-hour car ride from Lorium to South Bend. Now, contrary to what I'm sure is popular belief, young Gip had no intentions of playing football as a youngster. Uh, While he played baseball, and he was very good at it, he found that his favorite recreational activities also happened to be what he was best at, gambling. Gipp was a prolific cards and billiard player, a habit he would retain his entire life. His cousin, Carl Gipp, recalled him as someone who you quote, wouldn't consider a troublesome kid, but he was indifferent to his studies. He came from a strict family but he was very different from his father and seven siblings. George pretty much did whatever he wanted to do, but he was never what you would call troublesome, end quote. I think you'll find this quote to be quite the honest and accurate assessment of Gipp. And to use the cliche, he simply marched to the beat of his own drum. Always had, and always will. According to his biographer, Jack Cavanaugh, George Gipp attending the University of Notre Dame was surprising for two main reasons. One, he had never expressed interest in attending college, perhaps because of reason number two. He actually hadn't graduated from high school due to poor grades and even poor attendance. He would often skip school and go to the pool and poker hall during the day, often fleecing the coal miners of their hard-earned pay. So why Notre Dame? Well, Gip was offered an athletic scholarship for baseball. He was easily the best and most recognized athlete in his region. One of his semi-pro clubs would travel and play in Elkhart, Indiana, not far from South Bend, where the power-hitting Gipp caught the eye of the Notre Dame baseball coaching staff. But Gip would take some convincing. The year was 1916, and he was already 21 years old. Look, he told his older brother Alex, if I'm good enough player to have some college come after me, I figure I'm good enough to play in the minor leagues anyway. It doesn't follow that because a college wants you, the pros will, Alex responded. And anyway, they can find you at Notre Dame just as soon as they can in the Bush Leagues. So ultimately, Alex Gipp more or less strong-armed his younger brother to attend Notre Dame, again, to play baseball. So upon arrival to Notre Dame's campus that fall, Gipp spent most of his time in the campus pool hall, where he would play for hours. Walter Miller, fullback on the football team, remembered that Gipp would quote, run off as many as 80 balls in a row without missing a shot, and all the while not saying anything to anyone who might be watching him play. Students who watched him were amazed. As for Gipp, he never said a word or changed his expression." End quote. Even after just a short time on campus, Gip would venture into South Bend to find worthy pool adversaries, frequenting speakeasies and the South Bend staple Hully and Mike's, which tripled as a restaurant, speakeasy, and pool parlor on Michigan Avenue. Like he did in the UP, he tended to fleece most anyone and everyone who dared challenge him in billiards. He earned so much money doing this that he soon moved out of his on-campus dormitory, opting instead for the opulent Oliver Hotel, which was among the most plush lodging South Bend had to offer. When he was actually on campus, Gip was bored. If you remember, he wasn't exactly the sturdy academic type, and even he couldn't spend all day at Hully and Mike's after all. So perhaps as a remedy to said boredom, Gip wandered onto a deserted football practice field. And finding a a few practice balls, he began punting them up and down the field. Simultaneously, a young Notre Dame assistant football coach just happened to be in the vicinity of the field. And he meandered a bit closer to assess the stranger who was trespassing. The stranger looked athletic, uh, over 6 feet and 175 pounds, the coach guessed. The assistant coach, a former Irish player himself, now splitting his time between coaching and teaching chemistry, was named Canute Rockne. Rockney. Rockney was quickly amazed by the distance of the stranger's kicks, both punts and drop kicks, all accomplished while wearing street clothes and shoes. He estimated a couple went over fifty yards, well past the distance anyone on the actual football team could send them. Rockney quietly watched him for 10 minutes before approaching him. Rockney remembered the encounter going like this What's your name? Rockney asked. Gip. George Gip, he replied casually. I come from Laurium, Michigan. What led you to Notre Dame, Gip? Rockney inquired. Friends of mine are here, Gip responded, though there wasn't anyone from his area on campus. Played high school football? Rockney asked. No, Gip replied. Don't particularly care for football. Baseball is my game. Rockney smiled. Put on a football suit and come out with the freshman scrubs. I think you'll make a football player. Now Gip actually surprised Rockney by showing up at the freshman practice the next day. He insisted that he should be at halfback, promptly taking his first carry 40 yards for a touchdown, speeding past the entire defense. Not only can he kick like hell, Rockney thought, he can run like hell, too. Gip would, what would be what we would call now a scout team star for the rest of his freshman year, running at halfback in practice to ready the varsity team. But Coach Rockney had some serious designs for his discovery, who was becoming something of a celebrity on campus after having kicked a mind-blowing 62-yard field goal in a freshman game that year. This is, of course, in addition to his pool Legend that was growing on campus on the billiards table. After his freshman football season, Gip actually went out for the freshman basketball squad, though he would only last a few practices as he found the sport was cutting into his time playing billiards at Hully and Mike's. He would find himself in frequent hot water from the college for again electing to stay in South Bend hotels instead of his on-campus residence hall. Now that spring, he went out for baseball. You know, the sport he was actually on scholarship for. He lasted exactly one game. He was instructed to bunt, but couldn't resist a fastball over the plate, belting a home run with one mighty swing. Now, despite the home run, he was roundly reprimanded by the baseball coach. Gip decided he had had enough and quit the baseball team the very next day. Gip returned to Lorium that summer of 1917 to find, like thousands of other young men in the United States, he had been drafted to fight in the conflict that would become known as World War I. But when his army train left for basic training, Gip was nowhere to be found. The problem? The Lorium Draft Board had not issued a deferment to Gip, so he was then considered a draft dodger and subject to arrest and prosecution, inexplicably. No one seemed to mind that Gip had skipped the train. Which, given the fact that he was still playing every day for the Laurium baseball team, everyone was keenly aware of. This was Gip in a nutshell. He marched to the beat of his own drum. Heading into the 1917 football season for Notre Dame, Gip missed the first two games and would miss the final two games due to a broken leg. In the middle four games, Gip rushed for 244 yards. Due to his injury, mysterious draft status, and general erraticism, it was not known if Gipp would actually return to the school in 1918. When he finally reported to the Lorium Draft Board, albeit roughly nine months late, he sported such a noticeable limp from his injury the previous football season that he was either granted a deferment for the injury, or was deemed medically unfit to serve. He would nurse the injury and... He would not return to South Bend in the spring of 1918. Knute Rockne was named head football coach in 1918 and wanted to make sure his flighty halfback stayed in the stable. He wrote him that summer saying, quote, we need you and I hope you come back, end quote. Rockne was equal parts shocked and amazed when Gipp replied, quote, I'll be back Rock, I look forward to playing with you, end quote. Due to a worldwide outbreak of influenza, public gatherings were often prohibited, including football games, which curtailed the usual nine-game season to six. Gip excelled in all six of those contests, rushing for nearly 100 yards per game, passing for an additional 293 yards, scoring six touchdowns, and kicking seven extra points. He was firmly entrenched as Rockne's star player his puzzling and nonconformist behavior continued off the field. In fact, if you were to look at Gipp's 1918 and 1919 report cards, there were no grades on it, not even any classes. Talk about a poor academic performance. But he was endearing as ever. Biographer Kavanaugh makes an exceptional attempt at pinning down the duality of George Gipp. Quote, despite his carefree and cavalier attitude at Notre Dame, Gipp never displayed any arrogance or hostility of the type often manifested by many latter-day sports stars, apart from the occasional outburst at a player who he felt had gone too far to rough him up. If anything, as a college football player, he was something of a charming rogue, liked and respected by his teammates and his opponents on the field, idolized by his fellow students and most of the faculty and staff at Notre Dame, and highly but grudgingly esteemed by Rockney, despite his unconventional, even aggravating, off-the-field behavior, end quote. 1919 would prove to be Gipps' big breakout, nationally anyway. The team, then known as a multitude of names, including the Catholics, Rovers, Ramblers, in addition to the Fighting Irish, ran the table for a 9-0 record, and they were dominant outscoring their opponents 229-47 that 1919 season. During which, Gip was absolutely masterful, rushing for 729 yards, or a 6.9 per rush average, completing 57% of his passes for 727 yards, scoring 7 touchdowns, kicking 1 field goal, and 7 extra points. Did I mention he also intercepted three passes on defense? The 1919 squad were retroactively named co-national champions. Now, despite his on-field success, his school was growing increasingly sour on his complete disregard for the academic side of his college experience. Quote, Gip rarely went to class, and he was in a different major every single year to take easy classes, end quote, one professor wrote. At this time, the new college president, Father James A. Burns, was looking to tighten the curriculum and establish Notre Dame as a rigorous academic institution. After all, Burns was the first Notre Dame president to hold an advanced degree. Anyways, he decided to make an example of the always absent George Gipp, and the football star was expelled from the school in early March of 1920. Naturally, and to the surprise of no one, the official reason was, quote, cutting too much class, according to one of Gip's friends. Now, Gip actually, not surprisingly, seemed to take the expulsion in stride, and he continued to reside downtown South Bend in the Oliver Hotel and spending a lot of time at Hully and Mike's. So despite his academic prowess, though, six major football schools reached out to him, offering him admission and spots on their squads including Pop Warner of Pittsburgh, the University of Michigan, and football powerhouse, the United States Military Academy at West Point. Though Lord knows how George Gipp would have prospered in that environment. But his coach was not going to let him leave that easily. The competitor in Rockney began knocking on doors, starting a grassroots petition which was endorsed by 80 prominent members of the South Bend community, asking Father Burns to reconsider the decision to expel GIP. The petition requested that Father Burns and his associates, quote, give serious consideration to raising the band against GIP. Increasingly, the letter continued, South Bend is taking pride in the splendid accomplishments of Notre Dame. The most spectacular, of course, your victories upon the athletic field. Here, Gipp has been truly worthy of your university, end quote. Burns, feeling an incredible amount of pressure from his local boosters, eventually caved, and Gipp was reinstated in April of 1920. Though many schools angled at Gipp trying to convince him to leave Notre Dame all summer, Gipp was locked in for the 1920 football season. Who knows? Perhaps he would even attend a class or two. On the gridiron... The 1920 season started well for Notre Dame with easy victories over Kalamazoo College and Western State, later known as Western Michigan University, 39 and 42 to 0 respectively. They dispatched their next two opponents, Nebraska and Valparaiso as well. The early matchup against Army was a game circled on the calendar every season, and this year was no different. Gipp, who had starred in the first four games, planned on uh, really maximizing his fortunes for this one. Gip collected $2,100 for the team's betting pool. Just for a little bit of context, $2,100 would buy you a brand new house in South Bend at that time. And the Army squad raised a similar amount. And all the funds were given to a local West Point shoemaker for a winner-take-all style purse. Now at halftime of this game, the team was playing poorly and losing. Naturally, Rockney really laid into them and addressed the team regarding the scheme changes for the second half, and as he was doing so, he eyeballed his star halfback. In true Gip style, looking fairly indifferent, leaned against the locker room wall, smoking a cigarette. What about you, Gip? Rockney barked. I don't suppose you have any interest in this game. Look, Rock, Gip replied. I've got $400 of my own money bet on this game, and I'm not about to blow it. Needless to say, Gipps' sensational second half carried the Irish to a 28-17 victory over the Cadets of West Point, and Notre Dame took home the $4,200 purse. (laughs) Gipps' dazzling 80-yard touchdown romp the following week was the play of the game during the team's 28-0 victory over Purdue. The following week, down 10-0 to against Indiana University at the beginning of the fourth quarter, Gipp was sitting on the sidelines, nursing what would be diagnosed as a dislocated shoulder, which he suffered in the second quarter. Early in the fourth, with Gipp on the sideline, the Irish drive stalled on the Indiana one-yard line after two runs had been stuffed at the goal line. After that second attempt failed, Coach Rockney looked to his injured star on the bench, asking... George, can you put the ball in the end zone? I'll try, Rock, Gip replied. He was stuffed on third down for a no game, lying on the ground writhing in pain. But he opted to stay in the game on the most critical play, fourth and goal. This time, Gip was successful, bolting through the line for a touchdown. Unfortunately, he banged into the goal post in the process. Which, if you were to remember, goalposts actually used to be situated in the front of the end zone as opposed to the back. Unfortunately for Gibb, once he banged into the goalposts, he actually broke his collarbone. Somehow, he managed to kick the extra point in what I can only imagine to be excruciating pain. And the cough he had developed that week certainly wasn't helping matters either. Perhaps inspired by the gutsiness of their star player, the Irish rallied for a 13 to 10 victory, running their record to a perfect 7 and 0. But Gibbs' cough persisted throughout the next week, prompting him to stay in bed for most of it. Rockney came and visited him in his dormitory room. "Are you sure you're okay?" Rockney asked. "If you're not, I won't use you." He was talking about the upcoming game against Northwestern. I'm not great, Rock, but I'm okay, Gip replied with a weak smile. If I don't feel Jake, I won't play. Jake, of course, meant okay in that time. Though he may not have known it at that moment, George Gipp was dying. His dislocated shoulder ached, as did his broken collarbone. His cough remained persistent, and his temperature rose to 102 degrees. But he jumped on the train anyways to Evanston, Illinois, where the Irish were to play the Northwestern Wildcats on November 20th. The Notre Dame Chicago alumni group even organized a George Gipp Day for the star, though his condition, he was surely going to be sidelined. By halftime, Gipp still hadn't entered the game and was sitting on the bench with a heavy parka on, an attempt to keep the rain off of him. The Irish were winning 14-0, to mostly with their second stringers in. Soon, the crowd's restlessness for the star grew. We want Gip. We want Gip, they chanted. Even with the visiting Irish up by two touchdowns, the clamoring grew louder. We want Gip. We want Gip. Gip slowly stood up from his perch on the bench, quietly acknowledged the crowd and walked over and asked Rockney if he could go in. Rockney shook his head no. But Gip asked again. Rockney relented. All right, George, but remember, don't run with the ball. The crowd erupted as Gip limped into the huddle. Now, keep in mind Gip's physical well-being at this point. In fact, before the game, he found that he couldn't even raise either arm without excruciating pain. But Gip somehow completed five of six passes, for 129 yards and two touchdowns, including one pass that traveled 40 yards in the air. Imagine that. Gipp was deemed a hero on his, on his own George Gipp Day at Northwestern University. And once he returned to campus, he quickly retreated back to his dormitory at Soren Hall. About a week later, Gipp was at a banquet in South Bend to celebrate another undefeated football season. His friend, Hunk Anderson, noticed Gip hadn't touched his dinner. Are you all right, George? Anderson asked. I feel awful, Hunk, Gip replied. My throat feels like it's on fire, and I think I have a fever. Anderson put his hand on Gip's forehead. George, he said, you're hotter than hell. You better tell Rock right away. Rockney quickly arranged transport for Gip to get to nearby St. Joseph Hospital. Don't worry, Rock. I'm going to be okay, Gip said. I'm sure you will, George. I'm sure you will, Rockney replied, perhaps knowing the severity of his star player's health. Now, this is, of course, a deviation from the popular myth that Gip was hospitalized after having to sleep outside since the residence halls were locked, and he stayed out past curfew. Gipp was diagnosed with tonsillitis and strep throat. Though both easily treated now, antibiotics and penicillin were not available nor developed in 1920, and these conditions were both considered deadly. When he was admitted to the hospital, his fever ran at 104 degrees. Now, he would temporarily rally, mostly heartened by the news that he had been named to Walter Camp's All-American First Team. And he was the first football player from Notre Dame to hold that distinction. Now, during the day, Walter Camp was a legend in the sport of football. And his All-American team was the most prestigious, this is before the Heisman, mind you, the most prestigious individual award that any college football player could hold. Unfortunately, Gip's condition would worsen into December. On December 7th, calls to campus went out for blood donors. Nearly 150 of his fellow students turned out to donate blood for their stricken hero. Unfortunately, his condition continued to worsen. Hunk Anderson and Gip's mother Isabella visited him on December 11th. Gip looked to have lost nearly 40 pounds in a couple short weeks. With what little strength he had, he pulled his friend's ear close, barely registering a whisper, saying, Hunk, I don't think I'm gonna make it, but thanks for everything. On December 14, 1920, early in the morning hours, George Gipp died. Notre Dame's first All-American was only 25 years old. Remarkably, he was only 24 days removed from his final college football game. Over at the Oliver Hotel, a prearranged plan was executed. Hotel staff turned off the master switch three times to alert the inhabitants that the hotel's most famous resident had passed away. Father Charles O'Donnell, who would later become president of Notre Dame, stated, quote, he was an enigma we could never solve, end quote. His career rushing record stood as a school record for over 50 years, and he will forever be immortalized by the famous win-one-for-the-Gipper speech that Coach Rockney would use to galvanize the Irish team to a dramatic 12-6 victory over the heavily favored Army squad in 1928. You know the one. It goes a little something like this. None of you ever knew George Gipp. It was long before your time. But you know what a tradition he is at Notre Dame. And the last thing he said to me was, Rock, sometime when the team is up against it and the Brakes are beating the boys, tell them to go out there and with all they got, just win one for the Gipper. I don't know where I'll be then, Rock, he said, but I'll know about it and I'll be happy. Did Gipp utter these immortal words to Coach Rockne on his deathbed? Probably not. It has, however, ensured that no one will ever forget the name of George Gipp, whose uninhibited way of living his life only complemented his remarkable achievements on the gridiron. And that was George Gipp, the charming rogue, the life and times of Notre Dame's sensational, yet enigmatic icon. We will be right back. Alright, and welcome back. And I really, really hope that that was enjoyed. Uh, it was a great time for me to be able to kind of do a little bit of digging. Uh, as I mentioned um, many times, Kavanaugh's book, just titled The Gipper, um, is a fantastic read. If you're just trying to acclimate yourself with the character of Gip, and like I said, it reads very easily, but I really, really enjoy reading about George Gip. And there's a couple things that I just really find striking. And number one is his relationship with uh, Knut Rockney, because I feel as though that is so relatable to so many of us about other relationships we have. It might not even be a, a player coach relationship, but Rockney and and Gipper almost resembled father son relationship in in many respects, where Gipper used to just irritate the living you know what out of coach Rockney. But Coach Rockney was always so concerned for his well-being, and in return, Gip, despite being again kind of a freelancer, a uh, free spirit, he was always so respectful of Rockney, and would you know when Rockney, when some of the former players kind of talk about how uh, they would run through a wall for for the coach, I think Gip, if he were to have lived and been interviewed about it later, he would have been among those and think again of that indiana game you know the score's 10 to 0 and you have an extremely hobbled george gipp on the on the bench um you know injured with his uh, with his shoulder and what does he do um when he is asked by coach rockney to to try to punch that ball in from 1 yard out he pops up without hesitation and the mutual respect that rockney and gipp had for one another despite being clearly different Um, You know, they were similar in a lot of ways, but they were clearly different individuals. Their dynamic is just so, so interesting. And the other part is, the other part about Gip, it always reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by Thomas Mordaunt, which he says, Sound, sound the clarion, fill the fife. Throughout the sensual world proclaim, one crowded hour of glorious life is worth an age without a name. And this resonates well. I mean, Mordaunt wrote it about the Seven Years War, but it really resonates because I mean, Gip died so early on and so suddenly that you know that is his one crowded hour of glorious life. You know, he played all told, uh, you know, five total seasons at Notre Dame, uh, including the the shortened season with the uh, the, the flu pandemic, but. The one crowded hour of Glorious Life, you could almost even akin to those last few games, those last eight weeks of his senior football season. And one crowded hour of Glorious Life is worth an age without a name. And suffice to say, he is one that will be forever immortalized, not just in Notre Dame lore, but also college football and history. And I think it is a remarkable story. And for everything that people know about George Gipp, there are so there's so much more that I think, I think people don't realize, and that's kind of what this episode was about. I remember after reading the Kavanaugh book, I thought this reads like fiction, like truly some of these things were just almost ripped out of a storybook. But Gip was was not fiction. He was a very real person. So I recommend the book to anybody. In fact, I I bought a copy and gave it to one of my brothers because I really really wanted to talk about uh, talk about it. So I really look forward to doing that soon. But anyway, so that was that was the 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 story of George Gip, and like I said, I hope you enjoyed that. We're kind of getting to the uh, very end here. So just as a quick reminder, please message the show. Please message the show and. Say anything you'd like, and I will read all the messages during the preview episode. So, And in doing so, not only are you getting a cool opportunity to interact with the show, but you're also putting your name into the drawing for the second prize. And so again, I will share a little bit about what that is in a... Uh, future post but again say anything you'd like Uh, go Irish or you know your favorite Irish player on the squad how you think the team's gonna do in 2019 your favorite all-time I doesn't really matter just put whatever you'd like I I just want to hear from you and um, don't forget that if you'd like to to send the show a message or you can email if it's easier it's onward to victory podcast at gmail.com Of course, the blue send message button on Facebook would probably be the easiest way. But don't forget, we do have some merch. Check the Facebook page if you'd like to grab the PayPal link. Um, And again, any donation is greatly appreciated. But I will also say in closing that the ways that you can help the show, the vast majority of them are absolutely 100% free. So I appreciate you sharing the episode. I appreciate you liking and commenting. And again, don't forget to send me a message. I want to read them. And as I mentioned, more details about the giveaway are forthcoming. So, thank you all again for electing to spend a little bit of your time here with me, listening to, and I sincerely hope learning about, the legendary George Gipp. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And my name is Alex Painter. And as always, Go Irish!